I'm Neil Piggott. Welcome to episode 12 of Making Art. Each episode of Making Art features a conversation between me and a colleague in their creative space about their journey and their creative process, how they approach the business of making work. But unfortunately, the current pandemic has meant that face-to-face meetings are out of the question, and so using the technological wonder of COVID, Zoom, the conversation this episode took place in my current creative space, the studio. Frank Woodley has been making Australians laugh for over 30 years. As one half of the Australian comedy duo, Lano and Woodley, he is, along with Colin Lane, responsible for what is without question one of the finest all-time iterations of the classic comedy double act. Together, they were recipients of just about every award going in the world of comedy, including the prized Perrier Award for the best of field at the Edinburgh Festival. Over 20 years of performing together, they sold out shows in Australia and the UK, wrote and produced two series of the television show The Adventures of Lano and Woodley, where we first met, and even wrote a book together. The duo split in 2006 and Frank took his mischievous, playful, childlike idiot solo with a series of one-man stage shows and the television series Woodley, cementing his reputation as one of the country's most gifted comedians. And when Lano and Woodley reunited in 2018, another award-winning sellout show was the result and the incredible magical on-stage rapport was still there for all to see. To chat about double acts, solo shows, and the place where ideas come from, ladies and gentlemen, me, and then the thoroughly delightful Frank Woodley. You had a show for the festival, the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I think I've seen you on the side of a tram. Would that be right? <laughs> yeah, I believe I believe You're I You're still I, on the side I of the I'm tram. Ad- I believe I'm out there like like a kind of a ghost advertising a show that never existed. How how you how know? is it dealing with that? How is it dealing with the fact that you actually went to that effort to create that show and it's it's I did do it. It would have been a lot harder if I hadn't performed it at all, but I performed it at the Adelaide Fringe and at the Brisbane Comedy Festival. Right. For for a week. In fact, it was like my my final show, the Sunday in Brisbane, was there was conjecture, should we do the show or not? Because mm-hmm. things were starting to shut down and then the Monday was when legally we w- wouldn't have been allowed to do the show. Mm. So we just we just got in legally, but I I was even, you know, there were there were questions about regardless of the legal side of it, is this responsible to do mm. this? You know, so we were right at that right at that cusp, and then the Melbourne Comedy Festival was cancelled, and that's definitely my biggest season for the year. Mm-hmm. So it was disappointing, but at that stage, I can't help myself but get kind of what would you say like. I don't want to sound like this is insensitive or uncaring to all of the suffering that the COVID thing has brought about, but that was far more interesting to me and fascinating than me putting on a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Mm. The fact that this world-changing event was happening 
I didn't. I wasn't preoccupied with sort of. Oh, I wish I could still do my show. I was like, "What the fuck is happening to the world?" So I wasn't really worried about it. But now, actually, going into this second lockdown, it feels a little bit more like. And I, I'm sure this is true for for most people. It's like there's not the excitement of dealing with a crisis. Yeah, even this technology, it's, it's, like when we first started using this technology, it was like kind of woohoo, and now it's like, oh, God, I really yeah. want to be with you. Right. Um, yeah, right. And it's the yeah, thing. Yeah, so it's. The thing, well, the thing I think I'm missing more than anything else is that human contact. And I think for performers, I don't know, how is it for you not actually having that, that thing to feed off? That thing, the thing that is such a part of your life, that, that 600, 800 people sitting in front of you. Do you... It's funny, you know, like I, I've, never, I've never really needed it. Some people might disagree with that. Like I remember saying to Cole one day, I was saying like, I said something, this is years ago, but I just remember the certainty with which he, he came back at me. Like I said, I was talking about something like not wanting to compromise artistically on some sort of opportunity or something. And I, I said something pretentiously like, um, you know, I'd rather just not do it. I'd, I'd be happier just going and working in a sandwich bar than, than doing it on those terms or something. And Cole just went, that is bullshit. <laughs> like he just, you know, he just called it and I remember it. So there must have been, you know, uh, there must have been some sting of truth in it. But having said that, I, I actually, I feel like I've never really needed it. I need a project. I need something to occupy my man, my mind yeah. that I can really become obsessed with but it doesn't really have to be showing off in front of people. Like, um, and less and less I need it. So quite honestly, if I've got something to do now that I find interesting mm. and sort of absorbing and also sort of has a bit of a feeling of other people, this is not like, it's actually I don't know if it's got anything to do with wanting to, uh, you know, that sort of thing of wanting to give, like a service sort of um, sensibility, or if it's just more like an ego thing of wanting to be needed, you know? Yeah, that's um, interesting. But but if it's something that other people appreciate or even in my own family, you know, if I'm doing something that I feel like the family, um, it, it can, it's helping them, I can feel very happy just being absorbed in, all sorts of tasks. I, I don't. I don't really feel any great need to be performing at all. But then there's the other thing of just the loneliness of not interacting with people. Mm. General, generally, not so much performing to people, but but um, I mean, there is one thing that that is that is sort of that I like about performing, which is. There's lots of things I like about it, but one thing that I feel is really nourishing for me is I think it's a little bit like, you know, I've described it to people before, particularly comedy where you're kind of riding every laugh. You've got to be in complete, um, you've got to have a rapport with the audience of, of sorts, you know. Um, it's a bit like doing something like improvised 
downhill skiing <laughs> or or big big wave surfing or something, you can't afford to stop concentrating. Yeah. You have to keep concentrating. You don't have the liberty to actually just vague out. And there's something about that imperative that focuses your mind for an hour mm. that I do find there's something, um, what would you say, like uplifting or nurturing or relaxing or satisfying about being in that state of focus. Mm. That, you know, that so, uh, relationship in comedy with the audience is <laughs> incredible, isn't it, because you are writing them. You know, if they don't laugh, you've got to move on. You've got to kind of figure it out. You've got to kind of read them. Yeah. They, in many ways, I, I would imagine in comedy, particularly when a show is first produced, they're helping you to write it. They're the editors in some oh, ways. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely they are. And even, even they're the editors and even they're... You know, it's very interesting. I don't know if you've had this experience before, but where you write something, have you performed much that you've written of your own work? Oh, vaguely. Vaguely a little bit? Oh, so, stand-up in the early days, yeah. Oh, yeah? I used okay. to do so stand-up with Ferg, Tim Ferguson. Right. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Oh, wow. In the very sure, early sure days. I'm sure there's a few stories. I'm sure there's a but few stories about that. But this is about you, Frank, about that. not about me. Yeah. Oh, no, let's make it about both of us. Um, but what was I talking about? It was, oh, there's something very interesting I find, which is you'll write something and it will work on the page or you'll feel, you'll, you know, you'll have a, a basic feeling of confidence that you think you've got something working on the page. And then as soon as you start saying it in front of an audience, you'll feel this other level of intelligence kick in where you'll go, no, I've overwritten that. Mm. I don't need to say that. I don't need to be clever here. If I try to be clever with that clever little thing I've written in that particular sentence, in that paragraph or whatever, I'm going to lose them. Mm. I don't need to hear that. And you'll just cut, you'll cut things out as you're speaking because it's like a you get this other level of insight. And the other thing I find is, sort of like the value of a simple idea will reveal itself in front of the audience. When you're in front of the audience, you'll go, no, there's more to that little thing. I was just going to pass over that. Mm. And it's not even necessarily because they're laughing, although that is often, that's the clearest indication. But sometimes it's just a feeling you get where you go, no, I've got them in the palm of my hand here and I'm going to waste this little gem. I need to milk this more. So when you say you know, they milk want it, me to and when you say milk it though, is that kind of allowing yourself to uh, allowing yourself to get out of the way so you can see where that travels? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. Like when you when you're in your when you're right oh this is for me anyway, when I'm writing it, there isn't the same it's kind of like trying to make love. It's the difference between masturbating and making love to somebody. You know, it's like when you're at home. I, I don't know what you're talking about, Frank. <laughs> all the feedback is just you're going around in your own little loops, you know. But once you're actually in front of another person, things will become electric that you didn't even, you, you didn't even, um, you couldn't even perceive. They were, they were of 
much interest at all. You know, it's it's a very peculiar. Well, it's a similar thing uh, when you're thing. doing theatre because you know you don't know, particularly when you're doing a new play, you don't know what it is until you get it on stage, and then the audience helps tell you what it is because, yeah, we do get we do get a little focused on our own ideas, don't we? Right, and and things are going. You know, it's like um, things are going around and around in circles, whereas. And also maybe you're worried about things like, oh, is this a bit too cliched or something, right? But then as you present it in front of an audience, you realise, like I'm just thinking about theatre, you know. Um, like my my daughter has, has noticed she's picked up, you know, um, she sees common tropes in, she, she's 12, but she's, She's picking up all these tropes in movies, often that I won't have even noticed, but she'll go, oh, they always do that or they, you know. And, you know, there are there are things that are that feel like a cliche possibly when you're writing them, but then if you actually present them in front of an audience, they're actually such a deep primal thing. Well, cliches you know, are truisms, aren't they, really? In the, they're at born the... out of, you know, yeah, some really deep... Um, Fear or 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 um, attraction or something, you know, or experience. So, or experience. So, as soon as you start start um, presenting it to an audience in that rarefied, focused environment, suddenly you realise, oh no, this is not me talking about being bullied at school. Say, for example, in in Were a comedy, you? yeah. Um, there was this this one little example. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. I wasn't. No, but in in the like written into a story, telling a story about being bullied. So, so the character is being bullied, but I, I wasn't. I hadn't experienced it um, ter- terribly myself. My older brother bullied me a bit, but in a sort of a that sibling. What would you say? He never punched me in the face, but I cried every day for you know until I was about ten. Um, Let's not get into that. Um, well, I love him dearly now. He's a, he's a good guy. Um, but, uh, sorry, I'm I, going all over the place. No, no, that's fine. I think uh, my brother did a bit of crying as well uh, because, yeah, right. well, I was yeah, the well, oldest it, and it's yeah, part of your job as the oldest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I agree. Um, so what was I talking about? I was talking about, um, oh, so you tell a story about being a, being bullied and as soon as you, if you, if you kind of enter it with, um, like, uh, what's the, like respect for that experience, or you, you know, you give it some credence, suddenly the audience are just absolutely gripped mm. because it's horrific being bullied. You, you know, like it's the simplest little idea, but you don't, when you're just writing it, you might not quite realize, oh my God, the audience are going to be absolutely on the edge of their seats when I talk about this because because it's such a fear that we have and an experience we've all had in varying degrees and, you know, on whether you're the bullier or the bullied or whatever, you know, it's such a primal thing that you, yeah, once you get it in front of an audience, it, it, it definitely, um, the potency of any simple idea just goes, you know, is turned up to 11. The... You're talking about the universality of human experience, really, aren't you? And is that is that fundamental to comedy? Is that 
understanding the universal nature of human experience and finding the the joy in that human experience, whether it be a good one or a bad one? I think it definitely is, of course, but it's it's interesting with comedy because I think that comedy, this may be true for other, like drama and poetry that isn't funny and, and stuff, maybe, but I think with comedy, comedy is a little bit like... Uh, a combination of that, what, what you just said then, and almost like the brain doing maths, like sort of like music. You know how music doesn't have to have any um, literal meaning, but the way that the sounds harmonise together create tension and release. Mm. You know, so you can be incredibly emotionally moved by a piece of music, even though it doesn't have any specific meaning, mm. you know. And I think that there is an aspect of comedy that is like that, where it's about you're playing with an audience's expectation and then you subvert their expectation while fulfilling. It's like it's just like the way that puns work. You know how puns have two meanings? Yeah. Um and you lead the audience to believe your the the initial setup will lead them to believe you're using one meaning, and then when you switch over to the punchline, you'll you reveal that you're actually you know um, talking about the other meaning. So there's this moment where the audience is struggling to hold both both interpretations of that word in their brain at the same time, and then because you've created a mood of frivolity or sort of almost like a benign environment. So they have that confusion, but then they experience a sort of a, a release. playful release, yeah. you know. So I think comedy kind of has both. It does have to be about the human condition, but it also has this almost neurological semantic play that's happening you know that is that is actually completely psychopathic in a way <laughs> like it has no or sociopathic it has no morals no values nothing like that it's all just about you thought i was doing this but i'm doing that and i've done it in a in a way that has made you feel you would resent it if i, I was being confusing or i was making you feel if i was like um harassing you with that confusion but because we've created this sort of playful environment it's it becomes this sort of game where both participating in and then it's this fizzy thing that happens in your head that's just very you know and then on top of that there's the whole social bonding side of laughter mm. so so you're not necessarily laughing about like it doesn't matter what you're laughing about it's that you're laughing together. It's just, it's just that you're laughing together and you're both sort of being disarmed and going, you know, it's a sort and of music a weird... Is, it's a great analogy because music is the same. We all sit and listen to a piece of music and we have an individual experience, but we're all having an experience. That's right, yeah, yeah. And think about, I, I think in some ways, um, whilst I think drama 
there's nothing like being in, a, in an audience watching a live theatre drama and you can feel the audience being, you know, on the edge of their seat. But I do feel like um, comedy and dance music, mm. they're the two genres that suffer the most. By <laughs> Did you just do a little wee then? I just did a little oh. wee in my glass, yes. <laughs> uh, um, I, and I've just put my jug on the table. That's what the bang was. <laughs> Just for anyone who's Absolutely. listening, and Matthew, the, my sound recordist, is probably going to go, oh, God, how are we going to get rid of that? Anyway, I've done it's a wee in a glass and I've interrupted your, your train of thought. Well, I don't know. You know, there's a, there's a comment. Have you heard, oh, it's a f- famous um, writer, but I can't think of their name. It might be Mention or something like that. There's a quote where they say analysing comedy is like dissecting a frog. Have you heard that quote? <laughs> no, I have not. Well, they basically say, you know, it's all very... Oh, few people are interested and the frog dies. Right. Um, and so I feel uh, just that quote just came to my head as I was banging on and on about this particular thing. There's probably people out there. There's probably a small portion of people out there who are going, wow, this is really interesting. And the, re- the rest of them have moved on to something else. They've left the room. The audience is part of the performance, but you've had this guy that you worked with for so many years that is also part of or, or something that that takes you somewhere. How difficult was it when you split up with Cole in 2006 to actually then move into doing something without that thing to bounce off? That thing, we'll call Colin yeah. that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've always thought of him as that thing. Um, yeah, it was actually, it was very, it was very difficult. Like I, I, I started, it took me about a year, I think, of performing solo before I felt um, comfortable on, on stage in the same way that I felt when I was performing with Cole. And in some ways I've never, it's never been as much fun because right. it's not as much, you know, it's like I've, I've described it to people, even when I feel like it's going really well and the audience are loving it and I'm I'm feeling um, good about what I've created and sort of the best, even the best case scenario, it's a little, even I don't want to, I hope this doesn't sound rude to the audience, but it's a little bit like travelling by yourself mm. compared to travelling with a friend. You know, there's something fun about doing, sharing that experience with someone else, even though you are sharing it with the audience, but you're not sharing it from the inside with the audience. You know, you've, you've, there's something so much more enjoyable. And, and the thing that always made performing with Cole fun, and we've since, you know, we've reunited and done, done a big tour together again, and it's been exactly the same again, but is that because we're the bosses of the show, mm. like we've written it and it's our show, we're allowed to do whatever we want. <laughs> so so we never do the same show twice. We've got we've got the script like it ends up being once it all falls into place after you've done it about 25 times, it ends up being 95% the same. Mm. But the 5% that's different is you never know where it's going to come from. You know like Cole will always do something to surprise me and I'm constantly trying to 
trip him up and, you know, we're sort of making sure that we're both listening and um, it's not that we don't respect each other, but it's like we're not we're not inhibited by feeling like we've got to do it a particular way or um, there's no sort of rules. Like basically we can do anything we want and the other person just like like here's an example. If one of us thought of a joke during a performance, then the other one could use it. Could the other steal one could it use the, it. Could, could, yeah. Could if an opportunity came up for that joke that the other person had written the night before, use it. If it makes the audience laugh. And it's, so it's sort of like a a kind of a almost a combative energy on stage almost like we're sparring with each other, trying to trip the other one up or make the other one laugh or, you know, stir the other one up. Get So it's like this beautiful feeling of like of never being settled, you know. It's always got this kind of um, bitey sort of playful shit-stirring quality to it and I think that really helps make it enjoyable every night, you know. If one of us, like we'll pick up the, if one of us is really struggling because of some personal issue or something, we'd have the other ones back 100% and be supporting them. But it's more like, it's more like um, not letting the other person, and this goes equally both ways, not letting the other person just phone it in. Mm. You know, so if and if you keep expect- change, if you change the odd thing, it keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's almost like if you're expecting me to just, if you just want to cr- cruise, well, I'm not going to give you the setups you need. I'm mm. going to make you work. You know, and we both have that sort of uh, attitude to it that it's got to be alive. It's mm. got to be. It's got to feel that the audience that the audience know that this is. Um, we're here a hundred percent, you know, and that, that, so it's very difficult to create that by yourself. What do you do? You then? know, you, well, I, I've got a bit of, um, I've, I try to discipline myself. Like one of the things that I do when I first enter the stage is I try to do a couple of little things that I'm not expecting once I'm on the stage before I start performing the show. So it, it, it's hard to do it though, but it's it's just the simplest little thing of how I might uh, look at the set or um, something I might say or how I might interact with a, with an audience member who's just sitting down or every every show trying to have some little, it's like a ritualistic So you're gesture. looking for a new thing the just minute you walk on. Just to bring me into that. That moment, and it can be very, very subtle, and and like a, an outsider might not even recognise that I'd done something different from that one night to the next. But for me, I'm I'm trying to find, and then once the show's progressing, I'm always trying to. I never perform it exactly the same, you know. I always try to move slightly differently. You you end up locking in um, things that need to happen for the jokes to work. There's a sort of an element of precision that becomes very disciplined. But then there's also this other, it's like you have these little islands of, no, it doesn't matter if I fuck around here. <laughs> so I'll fuck around. I'll try to discipline myself 
to actually um, making making it clear to the audience that that was spontaneous. Mm. You know, or even if you can't make it clear to them, try to create that atmosphere. Because I, I do think that an audience is very, like, have you ever had that experience? Well, I, I imagine you have, but where you're watching somebody doing, in, in rehearsal, doing their lines and it's quite good and then suddenly it becomes incredibly mesmerising and then they say, line. Yeah. And it's actually because they've suddenly. They've let they go. They don't know what. They've, they've let go. But they're actually struggling to think of the next line. They're not doing the performance yeah. that they they had planned to do. They're not performing anymore. They're just trying to think of the next line. And it's very subtle, but you suddenly feel like, fuck, this has suddenly gotten really good. And then they go, line. But that's because the person's you know, really thinking. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to acting, so thinking. That's what, exactly. So that's what I try to have as many of those little islands of where I'm actually really thinking. I'm really experiencing something new in that and I, I haven't done very much acting but I, but I found like I did a Shakespeare play with um, the, the MCC, MCC um, Twelfth Night at the end of like it was a year ago or something it's such a blur. Was it two years? I can't remember. I think it was 2018 <laughs> but right. hey it was, it was some time ago <laughs> Some time ago and I've done other things since so um but uh, that was really interesting because I felt a little bit, um, I didn't quite get the right level of respect for the other performers. Like because, because I wanted, I did things a little bit differently every night. Not hugely differently, but just enough that I think it shat them. <laughs> rather than rather than it, rather than it supporting them, I think it sort of, you know, it was because I come from this different tradition, you know, this different uh, where I've had the luxury of just being the writer and the and the performer and the director. Some, you know, even if we've got a director, we're still, you know, we're we're it's our it's our thing. So. So I feel like I didn't quite hit the sweet spot in terms of working with with other actors who who don't quite have that same license, you know. Yeah, it was interesting. Well, it's quite it can be quite fear inducing for a for a, a a theater actor to see that kind of fluidity or that that looseness. We're used to hitting our and marks. also if they, yeah, and also if they're not sure what's expected of them. Mm. You know, they, they're sort of unfair in a way. Um, I think you're being, I think you're being very, overly harsh on yourself. There, there were some very funny things. Like one, one the um, first scene back from from uh, after Interval, I was playing a character, um, Anthony Agucheek, who's like a kind of upper-class prat. And I had this sort of uh, these long leather gloves that I would take too long, you know, trying to pull the fingers trying to take off one of the gloves and it was just too difficult for me while I was doing this scene. And I would eventually kind of get it off and I would 
at one point when I was saying something, I'd slap the other actor with this leather glove on the shoulder, made a great sound, you know. And it was the first scene after after Interval. And I had a line, I can't even remember what it was, but it was something like, um, do you think... Do you think I don't know what's going on, or something like that? That right? doesn't sound terribly Shakespearean. Doesn't right? sound very so, but that was the. Dost thou something... thinkest I don't knowest what's going no. onest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. That's that was the it. line. Yeah, and and um, just as I pulled the glove off, I noticed, and the whole audience saw there was this family coming in late into the front row, and there were two kids, two boys. One who looked like he was about 13, one who was maybe 17, and then the parents. And just as the – and because I knew this leather glove, it didn't have any weight to it. It didn't really hurt, but it made, made a great sound, you know. And so this guy's creeping along the front row in front of me, and I thought, oh, this will be really funny. So I said, do you think I don't know what's going on? And I whacked the kid across the back of the head with the gloves as he was making his way to the, the seat. But I knocked his glasses off, which I hadn't really noticed, and they fell down between the seats and then he couldn't find them. So I just had to, like, for me, this was kind of like gold in a sense. But for the other actors who were on stage with me, it was like, I mean, they might have been enjoying it, but it was like, because I felt I can't just go on with the play because this kid can't see the play now. And it's my fault. You know, I'm going to be an absolute prick. So I had to just sort of not break character, but break the scene and get down and try to help the kid find his glasses. And, you know, we're fishing around in the seats. The scene went on for about five minutes. We never, he never found his glasses again. He couldn't find them. So there's so this, we just had to... there's this blind, this child wandering blindly <laughs> yeah. around South Bank looking for his family, even now. He could be out there. Well, what actually happened, we, we just finished, you know, we did the whole play. And then as soon as the play finished, before the audience left, I just ran back on stage and ran down and just helped the kid look for his glasses. Did you find them? And and we and one of the other audience members found them kind of wedged between something, you know, they and we did find them. And then there was a big hurrah from the audience who was still, there's about a third of the audience who was still in the room and we went, we found them and there was... <laughs> Well, see, now but, they won't forget that show. That no, show will stay right. with for me, them forever. For me, that was, um, that's what I do it for. Yeah. I do it for those moments of genuine connection with the, the audience, like exhilarating electric connection, you know. Yeah. And, of course, you can have that possibly even more intensely if you're an actor and you commit to the role and you're doing Shakespeare and you're quite a good writer, apparently. He and so a, he will take the audience. I think he's, things, yeah, he? he wrote a few. Um, uh, Romeo. Oh, I can't remember. Um, it was it was a long time ago. It, it was a while. So I appreciate that actually for other other for other actors they can create that experience. It doesn't happen as easily, though, because it's got to be little, really good. I think we've got a little precious. If you look back at what the theatre lo- was like when Shakespeare was writing, you had people pissing right. in the in the, in, <laughs> in the, you know, the area, the, the right. uh, I can't remember what they called the pit, I think they called it. Right. Um, or, you know, and people selling peanuts. It was, 
it was not uh, the, the the kind of decorum or the that we have now. Hey, listen, we're going to go yeah. to a break, and okay. I I like to ask: um, Does music play a part in your creative world? Yeah, it's it's um mainly mainly just my me playing the guitar. I play the guitar and I play the guitar a lot. So I play it almost as a calming meditation sort of thing for myself. So I'll often noodle around on the guitar before I try to write anything or um, or try to be creative. And then even, you know, in my shows, I'll, I'll always have a couple of songs and stuff. So definitely. When you noodle around on the guitar, what do you like to play? Well, I've been playing... Um, there's a Tom Waits song that I've been playing recently and um, uh, Hold On. It's a sort of a more, it's it veers over into being a bit more of a cheesy ballady sort of thing. I it's know beautiful. The one well. Beautiful. And, um, you know, I might play Go All Over the Place. I was playing, um, what's the, I'm in heaven, I'm in. Heaven. I can't even think of the name of the, the singer. A very famous uh, brown-eyed girl and oh, oh Van Morrison. Van Morrison. That was a you know. I'm not a massive. I don't play Van Morrison on the uh, you know. I don't play his music a huge amount, but uh, singing that this morning and um, yeah, all sorts of things really. Jackie Wilson said, and the great Van Morrison. One of the tunes my guest, Frank Woodley, was mucking about with on his guitar this morning. And a song that was apparently recorded in one take for Morrison's sixth studio album, St Dominic's Preview. You're listening to episode 12 of Making Art with me, Neil Pickett. Making Art is released on Apple Podcast and Google Play every fortnight-ish. And if you'd like to know just a little more information about my guest each episode, pop on to the Making Art website, www.makingart.com.au or the Making Art Facebook page, which I'm still wrestling with. A part of the problem now, it seems, is that I've somehow managed... Part of the problem now, it seems, is that I've somehow managed to create two Facebook pages. I'll get there eventually. On the website, you'll find helpful links to some of the things that we've mentioned in our conversation. You can also send suggestions regarding guests you'd like to hear from, possible ideas for podcast sponsors, or perhaps you'd like to share a recipe. Of course, if you have any spare change, you could throw it at me using the donate button, which will help keep the interviews coming. But now it's back to my conversation with Frank. It's inevitable that any performer brings a little of themselves to every role. But somehow I get the feeling that for comedians, the line is quite blurred. So how much of that delicious naivety and gentle goofiness that we see on stage 
is in fact a part of the man himself. Here again is Frank Woodley. How much of your life experiences, like setting newspapers on fire in restaurants and that sort of thing, how much of that finds its way into your, into your work? I think it's true for most, for most comedians. It's this kind of heady mix of you've got to draw, particularly there are some people who are comic actors, you know, who play Chris Lilly or someone who, who plays... You don't really know who Chris Lilly is, um, but he, he he's incredible at assuming all these different personalities, you know, and that's obviously a well... Um, there's a great tradition of great comedians who, who do that. But the, most comedians have that thing where they rarefy their actual, the something about their own personality, you know, it's like distilled in some way. And I think that's one of the things that's particularly beautiful about stand-up comedy and I love about stand-up comedy, even when sometimes I find... Um, I don't know, sometimes I find stand-up comedy to be almost a bit relentless in its, in, you know, if you watch the gala and there's one after the other of comedians coming out and delivering their shtick and then getting off and then the next one comes out and it can be a little relentless in that way. You sort of don't go deep in when, when it's in that kind of form. But the thing I absolutely love about it is it's so incredibly personal and unique when it works all stand-up comedians know they they might start off kind of emulating another comedian that they know but it never really comes to life until they drop all that and start just basically being themselves but on on stage a kind of a performative version of themselves you know Mm. so so it's very it's very interesting like who did you emulate in the beginning? Because I know you did some weird, uh, weird things. You did things like conducting orchestras, which is comedically conducting or- orchestras, which is something that a lot of the great comedians have done. Danny Kaye did it. Yeah, Jerry I guess Lewis did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think I was definitely um, influenced by. I, I think probably the two biggest comic influences on me would have been the Goodies and Get Smart when I was a kid. And then on top of that, there was um, Jerry Lewis and and Peter Sellers and um, you know a bunch of other other things like like Dan and Danny Kay and and um, a lot of those. We never we didn't watch um, for some reason. Paul Hogan was considered a little bit too crass in my family, so I was never um, I missed out on that particular pleasure, which I think. When I, I've looked back at a little bit of it as an adult and kind of gone, I can see that would have been there were some great, very um, subversive, playful, very Australian. You know, there's something very, very interesting about the Australian sense of humour. Well, I, I sometimes think about that as being, and take this with a massive grain of salt. It's a gross generalisation, but you know how American comedy, as a generalisation, is. Uh, you're a win- the comedians are winners, mm. you know, they're sort of um, they're on top of the status, uh, you know, the status hill. 
And English comedians tend to be more, it's more about the misery of of existence or something, you know, they're more. And I think the Australian sensibility, and I'm, I'm not completely confident about this, but if I think about Paul Hogan and Husey, it's like this aloof thing. It's like a working class aloof thing. Mm. You know, so it's not, it's not, um, it's like I don't need the success. I'm, it's, do you know what I mean? It's a oh, sort absolutely. of a friendly, laconic, but it is high status. It's like I'm, I don't need, I don't need to be a winner. I'm a winner because of, um, because of my insight or something. It's a different, it's a different thing than the American, um, this is just stereotypically, of course, in all of the countries, there's a massive range of all the different archetypes and everything, but just as a sort of a general thing. But, but I think, yeah, for me, it was definitely, for some reason, I was drawn to that clown child man sort of thing. And even, even as a, as a kid at school, my, my go to, I think it might have something to do with being, it's probably an, an innate thing, but also being the youngest of in seven. my family. You were seven, I Of seven. Then. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly with my older brother where, um, yeah, you can overanalyze this stuff, but I've just got a little, I've got a suspicion that because I could never compete with him on, you know, on skill at anything. He was always, he was three years older than me, so he was always going to be, Better at playing cricket, better at playing chess, better fitter, at maths, faster, stronger. Better, yeah, fitter. He was gonna. He he could beat me, and so I've got this weird suspicion that I might have gone. Okay, I'm always gonna lose, so I have to make that my niche. I've got to be the best loser. That <laughs> you know, so that and and I also realised something. I've I've talked about this quite a bit, but I think it's actually quite profound that. When when I was in grade two, there was a relay race at school and I was the last one, the final one with the bat. And I remember coming down the final, you know, um, length of the, the running track and there was no way that I could win or even get a place. And so I just turned the baton into like a flute on the, you know, holding it on the side yeah. and just danced, just skipped down the track playing the baton like it was a flute. It was just like this spontaneous thing I did. Got a big laugh from all the the kids and the parents and everything. And it was like, I think I knew at that age, I went, I reckon I won that race. I reckon nobody else got as much cachet out of that race as I did. (laughs) You know, it's like a deep psychological thing of going, actually, I think I won. So, so... I've got a feeling that I might have at quite an early age, it's like a it's sort of a almost like, so it's based on an insecurity in a way or maybe not. Maybe it's just like making the most out of your situation. You go, well, I can't win, so I'll, I'll make losing my strength somehow. You say that and uh, you are, uh, um, as everyone knows, you're, you're a kind of delightful, lovely man and but you can't have achieved what you'd have achieved if there isn't some sort of steel underneath. Yeah, some sort of 
drive or um, what is it? It's very interesting. I don't think, to be perfectly honest, I don't think I really understand it very well at all. You know, it's quite interesting being a being a parent where you're sort of trying to instill your values, not, maybe not instill, but you're trying to communicate your mm. values to your to your child. And it's quite interesting how you realise you don't know what they are while you're doing that. You're going, what is really driving me? Okay, I've got that little, um, you know, what there's a word for it where you say something. something I've got a glib, um, these glib sort of philosophies. But actually, is that really what I do? You know, so it's 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 quite interesting. So so I do have. Like it's making me think about ambition as you're saying that. Like I've always thought that I'm not a very ambitious person in that I don't value external success greatly. I've always felt like, you know, if I look at the things that I love, just as many of the things that I love have not been successful in the world and many of the things that I see that are hugely successful in the world I don't love. So I've always been quite clear that success, external success, is not the does not mean that the thing matches with my values, you know. So I've always been clear about that. But then, you know, I do have. I will work incredibly hard to make my shows work. Mm. I'll obsess. I become completely obsessed about making them as good as possible. And I want them to. I do want them to be as successful as possible. Do you fight for, I, in, in, when you're with Cole? Uh, do you fight for your ideas? Are, are you do you have a, a level of? And I don't want to call it arrogance, but do you have a, a level of belief that that you will push through uh, for a for an artistic idea or an artistic value that you're looking for? Yeah, I think so. I think so, but. And I think you'd, in a way you'd have to talk to Colin to get a, a clearer perspective because he would, he'd have a, a lot more genuine perception of how I do that stuff, I think, because I think that I'm a good collaborator and I, I'm good at, but I definitely will be very forceful. I definitely believe, you know, I, I, was, I was talking to somebody recently, like there's this interesting thing where we have these two modes in our brain where we are receptive and open to new ideas, other ideas that we're, we're open to the fact that we are incomplete, mm. you know, and that we need to grow. But then there's a point where, like I think about it like a, a an athlete running a 100-metre sprinter. They'll spend months training... And in the training period, they're completely open. They're going, I can't run as fast as I want to be able to run. What do I need to do so that I can run faster than I can run now? So they're, they're trying to change themselves. But then there's a point where you get on the blocks and it's like you have to shut all that doubt down and you have to go, now I have to just believe that I can win this race. It's not the time for learning now. It's the time for applying what I've what I've learned. So in that particular moment, 
you become very closed. Mm. You know, you you you're not receptive at all. You're just focused and trying to uh, trying to put all your energy 100% into the conviction that what you that your preparation has been correct, you know? And so I think there's a really interesting thing with human psychology of how do we move between those two modes? We need we need both of those modes, but they need to be in balance. And I do think I think it's a thing in my family actually that we all I've noticed it as I've gotten older that we all sort of have this thing where we'll be very open talking, we'll be having a really nice conversation where we're all open. And then suddenly, and this happens with me, like I can bore people stupid basically in, in conversation where I will just like lock on to some concept, some opinion or some idea that I've got and it becomes irrationally important to me that that I convince the other person. <laughs> not, in, not in a, do, do you know what I mean? Oh, I know like, exactly like, what you I, mean. I think that I've discovered the truth. Yeah. I believe I've finally discovered the truth and now the world needs to know it, you know, mm. and I can become quite um And you, you lucky person, strange. you're the first one I'm going to tell. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, and then you proceed to just torture them. Um, but, but there's also, you know, the positive side of it is if you talk, if you're in communication with somebody who's got a robust mind, and and that's what I what I think about with me and Cole. That I think we both do really respect each other's um, perceptions, you know, and intelligence, comedic intelligence, and and artistic um, sensibility, and all that. So then you kind of can drop into that arrogance periodically, as long as you're aware enough. That when when you see the danger signs and you kind of wake up out of the fog and you go, hang on, hang on, this is not, this is not um, worth getting quite so adamant about. You know, if you if you're with an equal, I think that kind of the cut and thrust of that negotiation actually, like I, I actually feel, you know, I think that I do create the, my best work working with Colin. I do think it's better than the stuff that I do solo. You know, and that's because of that. Um, those checks and balances th- and those. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. It's, Although, um, you know, there was one one solo show of yours, the one where you fell in love with the ghost. What was that one called? Oh, Possessed. Possessed. I, I thought that that was terrific. I thought it was a Yeah, brilliant. oh, no, I'm very... And it was yeah, interesting, yeah, I but I proud. also found it interesting that you felt the need to create another persona on stage that you could interact with. Oh, yeah, I, I was only only when I, you know, I, I, I'm only so... I, I don't know if I was even aware of what I was doing, but basically I created a high-status ghost who possessed me, who I fell in love with. So I was like, I may as well have called her Colleen, you know. It was... Uh, <laughs> it was... It was quite obvious, you know, in some ways that that I was doing that. But, but um, yeah, it's a, it's it's it's. I think our own process and our own um, our own personality, our own, is largely a mystery to us. You know, it's so strange. And do you 
do you enjoy, so you enjoy exploring the mystery of yourself? I think, of course, anybody who's curious, well, I would assume you're constantly oscillating between looking out and going, what the hell's going on out there? And then going, what the hell's going on in here? And how do the two things, you know, how does what's going on in here affect the way that I'm seeing, seeing what, what's, what's going, going on? on how, there. there are some things where I think I'm, I have a certain, certain amount of objectivity, but, you know, largely really not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you, when you got back with Cole, did it slide straight in or was it a, was it a, a change of gear? I know that that show was much more heavily scripted than anything you'd ever done before. Is that right? Or what? I don't know. I, I have been told that that show was more heavily scripted than anything that you'd done before. It was actually more scripted before you began rehearsals, if that, if that is true. Um, yes, it probably was, but, but it probably wasn't, I mean, it was, it wasn't really, the thing is for that to really be mean, particularly meaningful, you would need to, you would assume that the thing that went on stage was, uh, similar to the script that we started working with, but actually we did have a bit more of a script. I think we did it for, I'm trying to think if we did it for our last, for for the island as well. I think we might have done a similar thing for the island. But we did have it, we basically met once a week for a few months and then twice a week for a few months. And then we wrote a script and then we only used about a quarter of the script. You know, so it wasn't, it's not like it was, it's not like we wrote a play and then we put on the play. It was more just because we were trying to just be a little bit more efficient, I guess. So we had a bit more grist for the mill going into rehearsal. But still, you know, huge amounts of that were not, didn't end up in the, in the play. You know, so how show, so how long from the from the from the initial concept to the actual show? What what sort of time period are we looking at there? I think we might have even taken eighteen months for fly, but right. from the point where we went, let's do let's do it, let's get back together and do a show before we did did the. So we really did take our time. It was a little, the luxury. Normally, most comedians are on the sort of twelve month treadmill, and mm. usually. Most comedians, I would think, don't even think about writing their show until about three months before they need to put it on because they're performing, they're trying to exploit, when I say exploit, you know, positively exploit yeah, the, trying to, the trying to use that the material that they've got. Years hmm. that they've got. And so then, then there's a point where they go, okay, I've got to start thinking about the festival circuit for next year. So we were sort of... Because we knew that show had had to be particularly good, and also we wanted we wanted to enjoy it. We didn't want to feel too much stress, so we gave ourselves a, a long lead in, like eighteen months. And as I said, the first the first uh, six months at least, we just met once a week or once every two weeks, you know, and just crapped on for three or four hours. 
and then, you know, didn't. Um, it's not like it's not you know it's not like right. I don't know. Well, because I haven't written with other people very much, but ninety nine percent of the writing process is not even about the the particular material. You know, it's it's about ideas that don't end up in the show. It's just stuff you're interested in, creating a rapport with the other person so that when you do start writing, you've, you're in that playful mood. And, you know, like a lot of people, um, that's the other thing I do find quite difficult myself. That's, you know, we were talking before about playing the guitar to try to get myself into, a, into the right state. Like some people talk about, um, uh, you know, being... Oh, my mind's got blank. What do you call it when you put off things? You procrastinate. Mm. You know, people talk about pro- that procrastinating is a problem for all sorts of work, but particularly for writers. But I've, I've, I'm really clear that I actually do have a period before I write of about three hours where it would look like I'm procrastinating because I'm not working. But what I'm doing is I'm going into my imagination. You know, I'm letting go of all of the all of the external distractions and not just distractions, but sort of interests and things that arouse me and concern me. And I'm going into a dream state of sorts, you know, like a waking dream state. And it takes me about three hours to descend into that state. And then once I get there, I can be very efficient writing. Mm. I can write lots, really clear thinking, usually for about three hours. I can get a lot done in three hours. But I can't just go there, you know. I can't just go, okay, I'm now going to be really um, creative. I just can't do that. I need to... We were talking on the phone a couple of weeks ago and you do you use you were talking about doodling. Is that one of the ways that you do do that? Do you doodle and how do you get yourself into that state? You say you play the guitar, doodling. Yeah, I'll play the guitar, I'll doodle, I'll just I'll sometimes organize my books, you know, I'll read over the stuff that I've been working on, I'll do a little bit of doodling. Sometimes it's even just me sitting, like people would think it's distraction, but I might even sit and just read the news on the on the computer or um, which you would think would be about, you'd think that's kind of. That would fire me you up. You know, <laughs> stimula- stimulating yeah. me, but it's I can feel, I can feel this thing back, it's about three feet behind me. And I can feel it slowly coming closer as I'm just, it's almost like I know I'm going to do it soon. Yeah, I'm going to do it soon. Yep, quite soon I'm going to do it. And it's like this, it's a a bit like reading before you go to sleep. Mm. You know how people, you would think, well, that would wake you up. But actually... It can be like that. It's it's almost like I just need to do something where when I'm doing it, I know that I'm not really doing it. I'm actually just waiting. It's so like I'm trying to hypnotise myself. That, that's three feet back there but to that come thing and that's just... three feet behind me to give it a chance to come over and just get inside me. 
That's beautiful. You know, it's a, it's 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 a very um, it's a very profound thing. It's like I can feel I feel my state changing, and then once I'm in, it's like as my wife would attest, it's like if I'm absorbed in writing something in my mind, you know, she'll stand beside me going, Frank, Frank, Frank. And it's like I'm at the bottom of a well and I can hear, it's like I'm doing something, I'm fishing at the bottom of a well and I hear this off in the distance, this voice going, You're making like, Jody sound like a frog. Something. <laughs> yeah, it's like I hear a frog, you know, and then slowly I go, hang on, that's not a frog. That's something, I think that's something I need to Attend give to. my attention to. And then suddenly it'll go, fro- and it's like I pull myself up out of the mud in my mind and I go, and then I turn around and she's standing there she's going, Frank, for God's sake, you know, I've been uh, trying to get your attention. Maybe she said it six times or something or three times. I'll never know. Yeah. But, but you know, once I'm in there, I'm roaming around in my imagination with like it's almost like, well, you know, lucid dreaming. Um, and I'm sure that's not – I'm sure most people have that that capacity to daydream and, and imagine. It's not it's like I'm saying the time that I'm to do it, special I think. in that way. but. I think it's finding the time. Yeah. It's making the time for it, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that once you, like, if it's, once it's your job, it is, there is a good thing about that because you're sort of obligated to make the time, you know. That's, that's my responsibility is to descend into that well and look around and try to f- make something there. You know, that's that's actually how I provide for my family. So I think if if I wasn't doing that, if I had another job, I think it would be a lot easier to just let that, let that go and not do that. I'd still do creative things like playing the guitar and but I wouldn't have that same I wouldn't have that same it's like it would happen I I wouldn't I wouldn't um make it happen so regularly and I wouldn't have that, I wouldn't be aware of that feeling of going, no, I need the time to go in. I think it would be more you would just do it when you had the time. I'd play the guitar or I'd doodle and then I'd just, oh, I really got into that today. I really enjoyed that. But you, I wouldn't be so aware of that there is this almost neurological mechanism that has to occur for me to to be able to focus, you know. Mm. Hey, uh, we're coming to the end of our our discussion and uh, I was just wondering if there was another piece of music that you might like to choose to go out on. Okay. Well, weirdly, the first thing that came into my mind... Are you in the well was, at the um, moment? <laughs> um, not not right at the moment, but I did, I did the image of Nick Cave and um, Into My Arms Great. came into my... Head, which is like one of the saddest songs ever. So here I am as a comedian. I mean, but at the start, you ask me, you know, does is comedy born out of the human condition? And um, maybe this is a, a little nod, some kind of subconscious nod to the fact that even though I said there's that technical aspect of comedy, if it's really going to be profound for people, 
Uh, I'm not sure, because even there are comedians like Tim Vine who just do puns, and I think he creates a profound effect on people by just doing silly nonsense. So I'm not too sure, but there's something amazing about if a comedian can take you into those deeper emotions as well as have the lightness of comedy, you know, as part of that's why I love Chaplin. I'm a, I'm, I am a big romantic, you know, I'm, so I'm a big fan of Chaplin. So maybe that's why Nick Cave came into my mind there. Not sure. Thanks a lot, Frank. No worries, Neil. Absolute pleasure. I don't believe in an interventionist God But I know, darling, that you do If I did, I would kneel down and ask him. Nick Cave brings us to a heartfelt end to episode 12 of Making Art. My thanks to Frank Woodley for allowing me into his study, virtually. Colom for Saxophone Quartet, our theme music that you can hear quietly welling in the background, was composed by Melbourne's Tim Dargaville and performed by Sydney's Continuum Sax. Artwork for the podcast and the Making Art website is by Melbourne artist Darren Henderson of Dirty Good. Our website was designed by Scott at Pixel Shifter and technical production is by Matt Gerberkorn at Sonic Playground. Making Art was recorded and produced by me, Neil Pickett. Don't forget to subscribe, like, review or share us on whatever platform you're using and join me in a fortnight-ish when I'll be talking to the playwright, Joanna Murray-Smith. I'll leave you now with another tune that Frank was tinkering with earlier in the day. Tom Waits, Hold On. Bye for now. They hung a sign up in our town If you live it up, you won't live it down So she left Monte Rio's son just like a bullet leaves a gun With a charcoal eyes and Monroe hips She wouldn't took that California trip Well the moon was gold and her hair like wind Said don't look back, just come on Jim Got to hold on, hold on. You gotta hold on, take my hand. Standing right here, you gotta hold on. We have a time store watch and a ring made from a spoon. Everyone's looking for someone to blame. You share my bed, you share